my feet firm held by his grace. That's not just a great turn of a phrase. That is a great biblical truth, which leads us right in to Ephesians 1. If you'll turn to that. Now, here's what I want to challenge you to do. In Ephesians 1, and as we go through the book of Ephesians in the next number of months, I want you to forget your cumulative knowledge about Ephesians. Now, some of you are saying, well, that's easy. All I know is what you told us last week, you know. (laughs) And uh, so you don't have quite as big a challenge, and I don't want you to forget last week. And, of course, we're always delighted when... when, uh, We are introducing people to these great truths. But then there are others of you that have read Ephesians many times. Maybe you had the privilege of growing up in a church with a Sunday school. Maybe you've had other pastors preach through the book of Ephesians. Maybe you've even taught it. And that's where you're challenge comes. Let me explain why I want you to suppress, don't forget, but suppress that cumulative knowledge that you may have. We're going to hit some doctrines that various teachers, good, sincere, Bible-believing teachers, have different views on. So if I contradict your next favorite preacher, I I don't want you to take personal offense at that or to say that I'm saying anything about his motives in teaching a different view of this because I'm not. But I have found that people that don't, don't have any church background, that if you, for instance, tell them about predestination, and then you show them Ephesians 1, they say, oh yeah, it's right there. It makes perfect sense. It's clearly right there in the Scripture. But for those who have been taught other views of it, it's sometimes harder to see. But the bottom line is this. The issue is not what you've been taught in other places or what you've heard in other places or even what you want to believe. The issue is what's the truth? What does the Word of God say about this? That's always our issue. And I believe that as a congregation, that's what you're here for. And so I want you to think of it in this way. Last week we introduced 
the city of Ephesus and the people of Ephesus and so on. I want you to listen as if you are a believer in Ephesus. Now let me just remind you some of the things we said, what that would be like. You would be in a definite minority. And not an accepted minority, but rather an unaccepted minority. You would be looked down upon for calling yourself a Christian. You would be the shut-up minority. We don't want to hear what you got. And you would be surrounded by actions and things that contradict what you know about Christianity. Others who live around you would go to worship at a temple where there are temple prostitutes. You would be living in a city where anything goes. Women are used and oppressed. Children are property, slaves abused. As much as you want to be faithful, it would be difficult. And in fact, there may come those times when with all of this hostility around you, you may be wondering about your own, your own standing with God. Where is He? Have I done too many bad things to where He's offended by me? Does He even love me any longer? And how can I know? And then you're told from the, the believers that, that are in your fellowship group, you're told, we received a letter from Paul. And so, with anticipation, you gather to hear the letter read. And here's how it begins. Paul. An apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, 
according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's bow together. Lord, we, we can't possibly plumb the depths of just these very few verses. We can't begin to. And yet I'm convinced you've called us here to this place this day with this passage of Scripture. And so, Lord, will you impress it upon our hearts and our minds. Give us fresh eyes to see and hearts always open to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So why should those words bring encouragement? What is it about him saying those things to a group who he knew could be very discouraged? could have great questions in their mind. Why say that to them at that time? Well, we're going to break down just uh, those three verses today. And I will just simply tell you we are scratching the surface Uh, This could be a lifetime of study. And I hope it will spur one on for many of you. Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Every spiritual blessing. Believers are possessors of every spiritual blessing. That's the first thing he he tells them. Look, you, you need to know this, he says to the Ephesians. You already got it. Now let's go back and, and summarize. Mankind is lost. All of mankind is lost because Adam fell and sin came into the world. And therefore, man was in a hopeless estate. Because we're all related to Adam, we fell in him. He was our representative. Some of you might say, well, that's not fair. Well, understand this. By the way, nobody says that's not fair when Christ represents us, right? But with Adam, well, that's not fair. (laughs) You know, I want the good, you know. But but here's the thing with 
with that is that's, that's the inherited sin, so to speak. That's, that's who we are. We are a fallen race. But we are all also guilty of actual sin. We have actually done sin. And that's because that's our nature. What do you expect? In fact, without Christ, we don't really have any choice because we will always, we will always act according to our nature. And so we're in that hopeless estate. And we will see later in, in Ephesians 2 that that means we are spiritually dead. We could not do anything about it. We can't pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. Impossible, Paul will convince us. And then Jesus, who is fully God, took on human flesh and became man and lived a perfect life which concluded when he went to the cross to pay the penalty for the sins of his people. His people are those who, by the power of God, and we've, we sang about this several times today, by the power of God have been given new hearts. And when we have that new heart, then that's a new nature. And then we are free not to sin any longer. Will we sin? Yes. But we don't have to because our nature has been changed. That's what Christ did. Now, every, everything that we receive and possess is because of the work of Christ. And it's summarized in that phrase, every spiritual blessing that's what it is. That's what he is telling the Ephesians and us. It is yours. It's yours. Are you worried? Are you doubting? Do you wonder? Paul says, if you're in Christ, you possess it. It is already yours. Every blessing, every privilege that Christ possesses, catch this, every privilege that Christ possesses belongs to us. <laughs> is, is that not overwhelming? It should be. And so the, the only way, that, that's what the phrase in Christ, we're going to see it over and over and over again, blessed us in Christ, in those in verses three through twelve alone, there's there's twelve times that Paul refers to the ways that the believer has a spiritual union with Christ. And so here's the thing: the only way we can lose those blessings is if Christ loses them. Is he going to lose them? No, never. Now, where, where is Christ? He is, according to Scripture here, in verse 20, he 
raised from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. The Lord Jesus Christ is at the right hand of the Father. It is the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, that dwells within us. So Christ is there experiencing every spiritual blessing. Now, obviously, we're not in heaven yet. But it's a preview of what's to come. Over in chapter 2, verse 5 and 6, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, this is in theology what we, we call the already and not yet. It's already, the, the already and not yet. It's already true. Not yet in one sense, in some sense. In March of 2001, I faced what I, I think is the last challenge of my educational career. Uh, I, I went to defend my dissertation, my doctoral dissertation. And so I uh, flew up to St. Louis to Covenant Theological Seminary, and I sat in a room with uh, four or five guys, I don't remember, who had read my work, all of them way smarter than me, and they proceeded to talk to me, to grill me about my little body of work. That's, that's about the best I can say about my work, okay? And so after we had talked for quite some time, they'd asked me a number of questions and, and things like that. They, they said, okay, we need you to go out in the hallway and sit, which seemed like an eternity. And, uh, you know, sitting in the hallway while they're talking about me in there. And, and then they, they called me back in. And they said this, uh, we've unanimously voted to approve your dissertation. Congratulations, Dr. Weldon. Now, that, that felt really good, don't get me wrong. But you know, there was a little bit more before technically I had received the degree, right? I, they had some suggestions, I I'd had to do some rewriting, I submitted it to the head librarian who then edited it with a fine-tooth comb, which I then had to do some more rewrites before it could be, uh, you know, placed in the library and that kind of a thing. Now, that was in March, and actual graduation was in May. And so I went to St. Louis again, and that day in May, they put, they put the hood on, on me and so on, and handed me the degree, and then I was technically Dr. Weldon, which I don't, I don't care if you ever call me that. Don't, don't, I'm not saying that for that. But do you see the difference? You know, it, it was already back then, but it was really not yet. It was going to happen. It was possessed by me, but it was not quite yet. One more quickie down to earth on this. 
a young, young wife gets pregnant. And what is she? What is she? A mother, right? Technically, she's a mother. We pray for her as a mother and so on. But, you know, until that baby's delivered, it, it that might not quite feel like completely. Now, barring something changing, she will hold the baby. It's... It's the already, but not yet. Now, that's the way it is with us. Spiritual blessings are ours. We already experience His grace and peace, but the not yet is that everything in this world experiences that in its fullness. So that's the not yet. But we don't want to forget the already. And that's what Paul is saying to the Ephesians. You are possessors of all of the spiritual blessings. There's a second encouragement here. Verse 4, and that is that believers have been chosen for a purpose. Even as he chose us in him, before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Now some would say and some teach, well, but he chose everybody for that purpose. And then he just waits to see who will then respond to him. I went to a college that taught that. He does all the work, but then... It's up to only that individual whether this will be true or not. Well, here's the first question we need to ask when it says, He chose us in Him. Who is the us? Because that's going to define who it's talking about here. He chose us in him. Did he choose everyone in the world or a certain people? Let's go back to the introduction from last week. This letter is not written to everyone in Ephesus even. So when he says us, he's not not saying all we people here in Ephesus, believers and unbelievers alike. He's not saying that. It is written to the saints, to those who, if you remember, are the set-apart ones. So when he says us, he's saying he chose not everyone, but the set-apart ones to be holy and blameless before him. That's our purpose. A specific people chosen for a specific purpose. By the way, if he did choose everyone and not everyone comes to him, then his eternal purposes, that which it says he decided before the foundation of the world, they failed. Never. Never. 
never do the purposes of God fail. So what does before the foundation of the world tell us? Well, it is way before any of them or any of us had lived to do anything good or bad, right? We hadn't, we hadn't lived. It was before the foundation of the world. Nobody had lived. And so it tells us that his choice was not based upon anything that we do. So what's it based upon? Well, the last part of verse 4 and verse 5 tell us that believers were predestined to be the children of the living God. Here's what it says, the last part of 4. In love, in love He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. It's based on His love and according to the purpose of His will. It's not our desire. It's not our goodness. It's not what we would one day do well or that we would be good followers of Him. It's based on His love and His eternal purpose. Look what what believers are being assured that they're predestined to. It's a relationship. A relationship that was both begun and completed by God Himself. Which, by the way, that's how adoption works, isn't it? Even in our day. An adopted child doesn't pick his family. And in adoption, it's permanent. An adopted child doesn't cease to be a part of the family because they misbehave. Now, why, why should this, why should him, uh, Paul saying all these things to the Ephesians, why should that have encouraged the believers in Ephesus, and why should it encourage us? I read this week about a woman named Lisa who uh, struggled with knowing whether or not she was saved. Now, she grew up in the church, but in the church she grew up in, they, they talked about grace, they believed you're saved by grace, But they also had a number of rules, most of them unwritten, but everybody knew what they were, rules that if you were going to be a good Christian, you had to do do all those things. And her concern was, well, what happens when I don't do all those? Does God still even love me? Am I still even really a Christian? This is what she wrote. The study of adoption has clarified the confusion I once felt. Adoption is a legal procedure which secures a child's identity in the new family. God didn't choose to be our foster parent. We don't get kicked out of the family because of our behavior. We don't have to worry day to day whether or not we're good enough to be part of the family. In his infinite kindness, God made us a permanent part of his family. Nothing can undo the legal procedures that bind me to Christ. He died to redeem me. He signed the adoption papers, so to speak, with his blood. Nothing can cancel the work he did for me. I am free from the fear of falling away. Hallelujah, 
she wrote. Our assurance is because we are in union with the Son. If we're trusting in Christ alone for our eternal life, and that Son is the beloved of the Father, it's the Son He loves. The only way we can lose our relationship with the Father is if the Son loses His relationship with the Father, which will never happen. Hallelujah indeed. That's where the encouragement is. And so what's our response? He says, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. Predestination, election, was presented by Paul in in this passage, not as some cold theological treatise. Now, you have to trust me in this. I've got some books like that. I've got some of those books that if ever there's a flood, make a run for my office and stand on them because it will be dry, okay? But that's not how Paul presented this. It's, it's not a cold, awful doctrine that some place as a straw man and then fight against it. But instead, it is a warm doctrine to encourage the children of the living God who needed encouragement because they lived in an evil world that opposed them. That's why he told them about this, you know, this is what, what he's talking about here is he's saying, let me, let me pluck you out of this world you are in and bring you up to the heavenlies for a moment to see how this all works from God's perspective. Because I believe you'll be encouraged when you know that. But sadly, Some believers have missed the blessing of these great doctrines. Some have missed the comfort of knowing that God is in control of all things and have missed the peace of being able to rest in that. There's at least four ways that I've seen as to how some have missed his sovereignty one, one reason is that if God is on the throne, there's not really room for me to sit on the throne too. And some people just don't like that. They want to be on the throne of their, of their life. They want to be in control. I often say control is an illusion But people want to be in control or at least think they're in control. But an unwillingness to recognize his sovereignty will rob you of the comfort of his sovereignty. Another reason 
some have missed the enjoyment of these great doctrines is you've been taught otherwise. And so somehow to believe what I've said this morning would feel like a betrayal to the church you grew up in or to your parents or uh, something along those lines. I would simply say we must never allow any of those concerns to get in the way of the pursuit of the truth. And then thirdly, some people just aren't satisfied until they have every answer, explain every mystery to the satisfaction of their mind. I I will just tell you this. If I had a the kind of God that I could explain every mystery about and answer every question, he'd be pretty puny because, <laughs> because he'd be smaller than my mind. Don't amen that my mind is small, okay? <laughs> I'm teasing. <laughs> I agree, I agree. And we would make him in our own image, right? Right? We would make him convenient. We would make him what we want instead of pursuing what he's revealed about himself. And then another reason that I know many grapple with most sincerely is some hear predestination or election and all they can think about is who are the elect And it's not fair that some are elect and some aren't. Go back and sing the songs we sang again this morning. There's some great responses in those. We're going to be addressing that throughout this book. But if you find yourself stuck in that mode, I would simply say two things. One is, it's not for us to know who the elect are and who they aren't. We don't know. That's why we share Christ with everyone. And I approach everyone as if they have a new heart. And that's what we must do. Don't ever worry about who's elect and who isn't. That's that's in God's hands, who they are. But the thing I want us to be left with is this. Rather than asking the question, why not them? Ask the question, why me? Why me? I don't deserve it. I couldn't earn it. And when you hear that the answer of why me is before the foundation of the world, he decided to set his love on you, not because of anything that you could or would do, but only because of his loving plan. When you hear that is the answer, it will drive you to worship. So our response is rejoice that we have been chosen, adopted as sons, and that we are therefore one with Christ, and we are the beloved. Be encouraged by that. Let's bow together.
thank you, Lord, for these overwhelming words that you shared with the Ephesians long ago for their encouragement, but that, that are there to encourage us. Not there to answer every mystery or every whim in our own minds, but to remind us of what a great God you are and what great blessing you have already given to us in the heavenly places. Will you encourage us even with the already and not yet? Help us more and more to enjoy the already, but to live our life with the anticipation of the not yet. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.